This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Scott Thompson on the podcast today. Trudeau and Biden, the new bromance. Where are we with COVID-19 vaccine distribution? And will we see Facebook pay for its content? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Ready, honey bunny? I'm so ready. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Eileen, Scott's wife. This one is totally on Scott. Last night he was so excited about the shish kebabs I made in my new air fryer, he totally forgot to write Curtis's intro. <laughs> Great food, no intro. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. She swore the last one she did earlier in the week was going to be the last one she ever did. There's always one more in there for daddy, isn't there? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Jordan Armony is content producing today. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to jump into the show. You can do it through Facebook and Twitter. Find the podcast edition of the commentary there waiting for you. Also, uh, as well, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, let's talk about uh, what was happening uh, yesterday between the President of the United States and uh, Premier Justin Trudeau. Uh, obviously, the two of them chatting yesterday in a teleconference call. Uh, it's t- tradition, I guess, for the United States President, the new United States President, to reach out first to the Canadian Prime Minister. Um, that tradition was broken with Donald Trump when he decided to call the UK first, but then that's another story. Uh, first of all, here's Global's David Aiken on uh, the Prime Minister and his joy around climate change, and and uh, this, of course, now a uh, priority for Biden as well. Climate change is the obvious one. Biden had clearly signaled that he wants America to lead on this file, and Justin Trudeau was very happy about that. We're also going to talk about climate change, and, and thank you again for stepping up in such a big way uh, on tackling climate change. Uh, U.S. leadership has been sorely missed uh, over the past uh, past years. And in fact, the U.S. president announced that both sides would form a high-level ministerial group to deal with climate change. Now, the big thing that, of course, the Trudeau government is happy about is that the White House no longer has Donald Trump in it. No drama. We're not seeing any tweet storms now that the meeting is over. And so, uh, again, that, I think, is good for the Trudeau government. They now are working with an administration that is committed to multilateralism, committed to global cooperation, and most of all, committed to the Canada-U.S. friendship. All right. Uh, President Joe Biden uh, also speaking up uh, during this teleconference and mentioning the two Michaels. Let me reiterate our support for the release of the detained Chinese, detained in China, two Canadians, Michael Spavar and Michael Coving. Coving, excuse me. Human beings are not bartering chips. You know, we're going to work together until we get their safe return. Canada and the United States will stand together against abuse of universal rights 
and democratic freedom. All right. Uh, that is President Joe Biden talking uh, and specifically mentioning the, the two Michaels by name and how uh, that was also a priority for him. Let's bring in Danielle, uh, Daniel Ballant, James McGill, professor of political science and the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada in McGill University. He is with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. I hope uh, things are fine with you, uh, Scott. All is good here, thank you. Uh, how important was it uh, that the U.S. mentioned uh, the two Michaels? Uh, Joe Biden mentioned the two Michaels in this speech. China, uh, Justin Trudeau didn't bring up China. It was it was uh, Biden that did it. How significant is that? I think it's it's very significant, and that's basically it's what we need. Uh, we need support from uh, from uh, the U.S. because we are such a small player uh, on the international stage facing China compared to the U.S. So that uh, President Biden said this uh, uh, is, is really important. At the same time, also, the statement that they are not bargaining chips, quote-unquote, uh, um, you know, is very noble, but in fact they are politically in terms of diplomacy. Uh, that's the way it works, and I think that if the U.S. Uh, uh, really decide to, um, to step forward, there are different things they could do. They can pressure China to release the two Michaels, but they can also withdraw their arrest warrant on, on you know, uh, Meng Wanzhou, this Huawei executive who's in, uh, uh, under house arrest in, in Vancouver. Or they could do something. Uh, um, they could maybe give something uh, to China, uh, um, uh, at least regarding this file, to, to help ease the relationship between Canada and China. Because... We are in trouble with China in part because of decisions that were, that were made under Trump to have this very adversarial relationship with, with China and to go after uh, Meng Wanzhou. So you, uh, you mentioned a couple of the options there. What do you think the chances are that they'll, um, instead of directing their attention to China, actually direct their, uh, their attention to the Huawei CFO? Uh, is there a chance they could drop that charge? Is there a chance they could say, uh, how can they delicately get out of this? That would, that would be a possibility. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, um, it's in front of the courts. But uh, it's not just about what's happening, but the tone and how the U.S. is treating China. China is now very much aware of its, its power, its economic power, and also its military might. And, and the U.S. has to recognize that they, they have to deal with China like a, a superpower, another superpower. Um, and, they didn't, and, and, you know, uh, the Chinese nationalism is quite strong now, and they want to be respected at least by, by uh, other major powers. Uh, it, of course, they don't like when they are being criticized and what happened to vote uh, um, uh, in the House of Commons uh, um, earlier this week, um, you know, is, is, is not something that they like. Uh, and, and I think that uh, the U.S. can certainly pressure them to um, regarding the two Michaels, but I don't expect them to be released anytime soon. But it's important to, to have the U.S. on our side very clearly and strongly. It was not uh, as much the case, I think, under Trump. So it's good what Biden said, I think, uh, yesterday is a step in the right direction, but it's only a first step.
Uh, as you mentioned, China uh, and and their reaction to Parliament declaring uh, their treatment of the Uyghur uh, genocide, obviously they're upset with that. And, and through the whole Two Michael uh, affair, um, China's been quite willing to bully Canada but not really bring it up with the United States at all, even though that's where all of this originated. So uh, considering, as you mentioned, the, the uh, declaration of genocide earlier in the, in the week, again, China, you know, slapping Canada saying that's da 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 that's not good now all of a sudden you've got Joe Biden on board and he's mentioning the two Michaels by name so all of that combined with what the US president has just said yesterday how what is China's reaction to that what do you think it will be well uh, i think that what's important is what they do behind the uh uh, you know, behind the scene, uh, there is a lot of diplomatic talks that have been ongoing for months and months. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, the two Michaels have been held uh, in China for, for more than two years now. Um, and, and I think these are phony claims of espionage against them, and it's retaliation against uh, um, what's happening with Meng Wanzhou who is under house arrest in Vancouver, as I said earlier. Uh, I think that the U.S. have way more clout than, than we do, you know. It's, uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau compared the, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, with an elephant and that we are, you know, sleeping with an elephant and we, uh, we are affected by every twitch and grunt. That was his, what he said in 1969. And it's true today. And under Trump, we were, you know, really um, uh, sharing our bed with a, a cranky, unpredictable elephant. And now we have a, a more stable partner, uh, hopefully more reliable, and, and that's true regarding China, and that's true uh, regarding other files like climate change. Uh, obviously, the allies must feel that same sense of relief. Uh, what would their reaction be to Biden's comments on China and the two Michaels? Yeah, our allies? Well, I think that, um, you know, they... But, they, 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 it's important for allies to uh, to have the U.S. on on their side and to understand that when an ally is facing some uh, major challenges with a powerful country uh, uh, like China, that the U.S. can be on their side. And you know, under Trump, um, there were attacks on on um, international organizations uh, like the World Health Organization, attacks on on NATO. And, and I think under Biden will we'll return to business as usual, uh, uh, where the U.S. will uh, will actually stand more explicitly for their allies rather than trying to strike deals with you know North Korea or uh, other countries that are certainly not allies of the U.S. Uh, let's move on to climate change, uh, obviously, uh, along with COVID and uh, this situation that we've just uh, discussed, climate change up there as well. Uh, the prime minister almost giddy uh, and, uh, and and speaking uh, not too favorably about the past president saying that uh, the U.S. leadership on this was sorely missed. Uh, your thoughts on that discussion moving forward? Oh, I think he's very happy uh, that the, the Trump era is over, and, and on, that's true on climate change as well. You know, people in Canada who criticize uh, um, carbon pricing, for example, including Jason Kenney, in a way they, they had an ally in, uh, in Washington with Donald Trump uh, in the sense that they, they had, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that President Trump was, uh, you know, in, uh, strongly supportive of uh, the, the oil industry and so forth. So uh, I think it's important. 
that uh, um, we uh, for, for the Trudeau government to have an ally in the White House and someone who won't say things about climate change that contradict what uh, U.S. policy is. So the fact that the U.S. is returning to uh, the uh, returning under the umbrella of the Paris Agreement on climate change is very important for Canada because otherwise, you know, we were isolated in North America since Trump's decision to leave that agreement. Uh, and it's our huge partner, again, this elephant, and they pollute way more than new, <laughs> we do. And if they don't take the fight against climate change seriously, our efforts up north uh, um, look more vain. What are, uh, you know, this happens all the time after a new president is uh, inaugurated. Often, the, the first, well, it, it's been tradition that they, uh, they obviously uh, come up and meet with the Canadian prime minister and such. And a lot of that is formalities and, and reestablishing relationships or establishing relationships and such. But this time it seemed to be different. There was way more emphasis put on uh, this meeting. And, and you know, I, I was talking to somebody from CBS in the United States, and I said, is this meeting even, you know, getting coverage? And he said, barely. So, I mean, you know, it's more important to us, I guess, than it is uh, to those in the United States. But that being said, what do you think the objective here was to uh, was of this meeting? It, to me, it even seems as if the message here over and above uh, COVID and, and the two Michaels and all of those pressing, pressing issues is one of stability, one of Everybody can take a sigh of relief uh, uh, or have a pause and take a a breath of of relief and and realize that things are stable. Things are going to move forward uh, and there isn't sort of a changing of world order here. Yes, I think uh, from the perspective of the Trudeau government, it's more like, you know, the nightmare is over because they... The last four years were really tough in terms of Canada-U.S. relations. Uh, you know, reopening NAFTA, for example, gave a lot of headaches uh, to, to people in government and, and, and in the business sector and so forth. Um, I think that um, it's true that, you know, in the U.S. they don't care that much about Canada. I mean, most ordinary people, unless they live like in Maine or maybe Michigan, if they're close to the border, but otherwise, like people in Texas or California don't care <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot about Canada. But for, for, so for us, it's true that this meeting for Canadians uh, for the government of Canada, this meeting is far more important than for the U.S. Um, but I think that symbolically, the fact that we had the first meeting, although it's a virtual meeting, uh, uh, with the new U.S. president, of, it's our first international virtual trip, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a very good sign moving forward. And, and I think it's, the symbolism is, is very powerful here, but I think that this meeting uh, uh, will also lead to, and that's in the Globe and Mail and, and um, other newspapers, real um, um, work behind the scene about new emissions regulations, uh, perhaps new uh, uh, targets for uh, uh, emissions uh, um, that we could work on uh, uh, in partnership with the U.S. So I think this could actually lead to, to real, uh, uh, real policy change beyond the symbolism of this, this first meeting. Um, you know, uh, it's funny, even when uh, Biden was installed and the, the, uh, his press secretary had her first meeting, you could almost sense a, a relief uh, in the sense that it wasn't a barrage of tweets hour after hour uh, and then no press conference. Uh, uh, how do you think um, Americans are reacting to not hearing from their president every hour? Yeah, it, you know, it's such a divided country. I, I think... Most Americans are relieved, but Trump has, you know, still a significant base 
millions and millions of people. Uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly what percentage of the population, but but there's certainly uh, uh, a large constituency of people who still believe in Trump, or at least uh, the ideas associated with Trumpism in terms of um, you know this um, um, uh, this vision of the country. Uh, this idea of making Amer, you know, the, the idea of returning to the, um, to this certain vision of the United States, uh, um, making America great again as a certain, um, you know, there is a certain um, um, ideology attached to this, and this is still very popular, uh, um, uh, at least in, the, in, especially in the South and in some states where it's still even the dominant, uh, the dominant way of thinking of the electorate. Um, the, the strong support for protectionism, uh, um, the idea that you know it should be America first, and, and that we should not, you know, uh, that the U.S. should not help um, um, uh, uh, other countries uh, uh, as much as in the past, or that the U.S. should uh, not get involved as much as in world affairs and just turn inwards. Uh, this approach still has a lot of proponents, a lot of supporters in the U.S. So the fact that Trump left the White House so that he's no longer in Twitter doesn't mean that these kind of ideas are, are, are not uh, strong. And, and, and you can see that there are still a lot of members of Congress on the Republican side who support this, this vision. Daniel Ballon has been with us, political science professor and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, and uh, have a great day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. All provinces receive a per capita allotment of COVID-19 based on their population, and what they do with it after that is up to them. One difference is Quebec has decided to unload all of their vaccine into arms and ignore the prescribed guidelines from Health Canada and the manufacturers to hold back the second dose to administer 21 to 28 days later. That is what the proven science says. Ontario is following the research and was wise to do so considering the shortages of vaccine that have arisen over the past few weeks that have caught some provinces like British Columbia off guard who did not hold back for the second dose at first, but are now. Ontario is following the research and was wise to do so considering the shortages that have arisen of vaccine over the past few weeks. Ontario has administered vaccines to just over 2% of the population. Quebec has done 4%. How? Well, Quebec has yet to administer even one second dose of vaccine, delaying that for up to 90 days, instead using it all for the first dose. Ontario has chosen to follow the prescription as per Health Canada and Pfizer and has vaccinated over 70% of those waiting for the second dose. Quebec has done none. I'm Scott Thompson. 
Dr. Teresa Tam says she is hopeful provinces and territories will be able to start relaxing the most invasive public health measures to curb the spread of COVID-19 before September. Dr. Tam says it all depends on vaccine rollout and how COVID-19 variants are able to infiltrate the country. I do believe that between now and September, we're going to see some really great impacts from vaccines. But the variants could give us a sort of surprise. So, you know, it may not be the three that we're tracking now. There could be others. Neither TAM nor Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc will put a specific date on the move to lift restrictions. Rick Samprin, Global News. All right, so some positive news uh, in and amongst of, uh, you know, new variants and all that sort of thing. So we'll take it. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert, PhD graduate and Queen Elizabeth Scholar at Mac and is with us now. Uh, Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on this rollout that Ontario has talked about this morning, the uh, Premier going to be on in about a half an hour to explain it in, in greater detail, but your thoughts on, on the rollout and, and the breakdown as we see it? Uh, well, my thoughts are that it's an ambitious plan, uh, and that if all goes plan, uh, goes as planned, then we should be able to deliver uh, on the promise of the federal government to have everybody who wishes to be vaccinated by September. What is not clear to many people from the announcement this morning is, why is the portal system, the online booking system, uh, taking this long to initiate or to have launched? I know the general has said that, you know, they're furiously working at it. But the big question today is, well, why was this not sorted out the past year since the pandemic started? We knew that vaccinations were on the horizon. Uh, and so uh, w- there's a big question as to why this has not happened already. And second is about equity concerns, Scott. Not everybody will have access to a phone or Internet service. Uh, and so what happens to those populations who need access to the vaccine but are na- unable to use technology to access it? Uh, we're seeing this with Alberta. They opened theirs up this morning, and it is uh, it is crashed already uh, due to mm-hmm. the uh, overabundance of, of those calling in at once. Uh, do you think it's wiser to break it down into age groups? Uh, the, the general was very, very adamant about that, uh, saying at the beginning when it starts in March uh, with the 80-plus, if you're in the age groups that are lower than that, stay away from the system until you're sort of called, per, uh, per se, to avoid these. Uh, obviously, it, it's going to be a learning as we go as well. Absolutely. It is going to be learning as we go. Uh, and I'm, I mean, you can bet your money that we're going to have issues in the online system once it's, it's launched. There's no way you can convince me that the system will not yeah. face tremendous pressures on people logging in. And this is a concern that many reporters brought up this morning. And many of us in the field are talking about this today, which is that will the online portal system really be capable of handling the massive volume of people? And is there a way that we can get a better, a third way? So like, they only have discussed two measures. One is the online booking system. The second one is the phone centers. Uh, and the third, which is not really clear on whether that is going to be enacted, is family doctors. Are family doctors going to be reaching out individually to their roster of patients and booking them? Uh, accordingly with using their own services and their own system. So they, they need to be more creative ways of doing it because I can bet you that the system will crash on March 15th. There's no way you can convince me that the mass volume of people who might be just interested in how the system looks like will not log on to the system, which will create a massive overwhelming uh, you know, response and it will cause the system delays. And so we really need to be thinking carefully about this. Uh, they did mention that uh, doctor's offices uh, obviously being proactive and helping their patients get to where they need to be, but they're also stressed that it would not be in doctor's offices uh, at this stage simply because it's too, you know, I mean, to, to have a Pfizer or Moderna, which requires 
uh, the freezing conditions. It's just a logistical nightmare to try to get that into uh, doctor's offices before the other um, the other uh, vaccines arrive. Uh, many have asked for a blanket plan over Ontario. Uh, Ontario stressing that it's the local health units that can best do this. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think that the government is really trying to give, and it was very telling this morning with General Hiller when he said that public health units is the main player here. And it's about delegation of tasks. And we're giving, you know, a, a spotlight on the public health units in every city throughout the province who are in charge of delivering vaccination. That's what they do. And, you know, he, he actually said something that I thought was quite remarkable. He said, before this crisis, I never knew what public health units do. Um, and I think that now I'm realizing, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that public health units play a key role. And that's exactly it. And so public health units understand the demographic of their population. They understand how to give vaccines. That is their bread and butter. That's what they do. Mostly it is vaccinations. I mean, they do many other public health programs. But, they, you know, this is their chance to shine in a way. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of pressure on them to figure out what are they able to deliver. And the call today is for the government to support them. There's a concern whether the public health units will actually be able to deliver this massive task that they're designated to do and whether there are actually enough support, financial and human resources to help them deliver on that task. Uh, that being said, with vaccine and everything else that they do, they feel that's the template to use. Uh, is one any different from the other, obviously, than the logistics of handling this? Yeah, and so if you're asking me about whether like there's other ways to do this, we know that there are examples of other countries that have done innovative modeling, such as giving vaccines at IKEA centers, for example. So the question is here, can do we have enough staff and resources to open up different centers throughout the province to ensure that the highest number of people get vaccinated? And the other question, Scott, is uh, Johnson and Johnson most likely will get approved in the U.S. anytime to this week, which means that Canada will probably follow suit very soon. What happens when we get more vaccination? Is this plan going to change? And, are, and if so, how will it change, given that we'll have a larger number of vaccinations available? Um, many are talking about the different ways in which uh, the, this has been implemented across the country. Uh, the general didn't want to, the retired general didn't want to make any specifics or compare. He stuck pretty much to Ontario. Uh, but many are, uh, one of the reporters was saying, like, my goodness, in, in Quebec, they've already started to uh, inject these people and, 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 and outside of the homes, uh, the elderly people and such. Um, but what a lot of people I don't think realize is that Quebec has not injected a single second dose uh, of this. Instead, they've just decided to blanket vaccinate everyone uh, as quickly as they can. B.C. went down that road and then stopped once the supply uh, dried up and, and they realized they didn't have any coming in. Ontario announced today at this news conference that it was then now stopping holding back the second dose. They were confident in the schedule that they're seeing coming in from the feds that they will be able to reach those goals. So are now, uh, uh, you know, concentrating more on the first dose. Um, can we compare those two? I mean, again, at the end of the day, you look at the numbers, uh, it looks like in Ontario is at about 70% of the second dose. So uh, 70% of the people waiting for the second dose have been hit, uh, whereas zero uh, in, in Quebec. What's the best way to go here? Do we know? 
Well, the best way is that, that you know, every problem is, is basically taking its own approach depending on the numbers and, uh, of vaccines they have from the federal government and depending on their population needs. And this is precisely why the delivery of healthcare services in Canada is by the provinces, because the provinces technically should know best how to serve the population. And this is why you will see a discrepancy between each city and each province. And we will continue to see that. I think as the numbers come in, we will see that every province will have a very different approach to how they're going to go vaccinate their, their, their population. And that's all going to depend on the quota they get from the federal government, the number of vaccines they're able to secure for that province, but also primarily on their public health units and their ability to adapt and scale up vaccination plans across the province. And so we will not be surprised to be continuing to hear reports of different ways of doing this. I mean, the end goal is the same. The outcome here is to vaccinate as many people as possible in Canada, because as long as one province doesn't have enough vaccinations, the rest of the provinces of Canada are in jeopardy. And so the goal here is to get all of Canadians vaccinated by a certain period of time. And according to Prime Minister of Canada, it is September uh, of this year. And so I think all provinces are really trying to just achieve that deadline. So you brought up the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine, which um, uh, the FDA today has uh, cleared it for, from a safety standpoint. I guess there's still one more hurdle for it, uh, and it said it's a, it's a one shot dose with a 66 percent efficacy rate. Um, many are debating, and we've been having this debate for months since the vaccinations were uh, developed, about one shot versus two, which is obviously an extension of the question I just asked you. So why are we good with Johnson & Johnson's one-shot dose at 66%? However, we're, you know, we're, we're debating whether to do Moderna. Sorry, Moderna's I think is a bit different, but Pfizer's is still about 90% efficacy rate with the first uh, jab, is it not? So, uh, well, certainly better than, than what Johnson and Johnson is. So should we, we be relying on that second dose or should we just be hitting everybody once? I don't have the perfect answer for that. And that's something that everybody's been asking and we're trying to figure out the answers. I mean, pharmaceutical companies hold on to their data very closely. And so getting that information from firsthand sources is sometimes difficult. I will comment and say that Pfizer released their data very early because they were one of the first ones, if not the first one, to actually have the clinical trials. And so when they talked about their, their effectiveness rate, they really were basing it on very early data. Um, and so that might change. And I think that's what we're anticipating to happen. I don't think anybody has a clear answer on why Johnson & Johnson is reporting 60%. I mean, I think also part of the reason is that Johnson & Johnson has had a much longer period of time to test their study, their, their vaccine on a, on a population. And so their data is different. It's, set, it's based on a, in a wider demographic on a longer time span. Not the same case with Pfizer. And that's where the question right now is among the scientists is that is it really a matter of date and time of when they collected data and analyzed it or is there something specific about the vaccine itself i think that once the johnson johnson gets approved in canada we will definitely have a very clear answer on that because the pressure is there to get that clarity um what can you see doctor this happening this scenario hypothetically which i'm just about to present to you that Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we realize you know the pfizer doesn't need two doses it only needs one it still has 90 percent and therefore, when you think about it, the amount of money that has been spent and effort on that second dose, that's pure profit for the company. Is anybody raising those questions? Yes, they have been raised. And I'm glad you brought this up, Scott. It was raised by actually the World Health Organization because there's a big concern of that. And, the, and the, the statements from many experts who are in charge of this, looking into the science behind it, have said that no. 
two vaccines are still noted, two doses of the vaccine is still needed. And so as far as we know, up until now, there's been no indication that, you know, for some reason you could have just went with one. However, if the technology changes or the data changes, we could possibly see, and I'm putting out a speculation here, that at some time in the near future, Pfizer or Moderna, especially that Johnson Johnson now is being able to produce one-shot vaccine, might be able to change the formula to somehow make it only a one dose. That doesn't change the fact that whatever we've been given so far does require the two doses, according to Pfizer and Moderna, to achieve the effectiveness they claim it, it, it will provide. So that being said, doctor, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s, so it looks for me I'm waiting for uh, until August, uh, at least until, uh, you know, going by these uh, guidelines, which obviously are probably conservative. Um, And then by that time, the Johnson and Johnson might be available. But, you know, as a person getting a jab in the arm, I don't want a 60 percent efficacy rate. I want the 90 Yes, and this I'm so happy you brought this up because this is something that I'm struggling to find answers for, Scott, is that are we giving people the choice when they get vaccinated, whether they get Moderna, Pfizer, and if Johnson & Johnson get introduced, will they have a choice? Because what I suspect is going to happen is the general public is very educated, thanks very much to the media outlets like yourself who are educating people on a daily basis about the different vaccines. I have a feeling that our population, when they go get the vaccine, might actually request a specific vaccine over the other. What happens then? Uh, you know, if you go and say, I don't want the Johnson & Johnson, I want the Pfizer. Are you given that choice or is it that you get what is available? And so that's a question that I, I, I would love to get an answer for. I myself don't have an answer for and I'm pushing different stakeholders to get me an answer on. But you're right. I mean, I think that's going to be a big question as we approve more and more vaccines. Do a Canadians have a choice between which vaccines they get? And also on the timeline you brought up, you're 50 years old and you, you're looking at July. Well, the prime minister said that everybody who wishes to get vaccinated should be get vaccinated by September. What we still have, there's a big population that still needs to get vaccinated. Is that really realistic? Is that going to yeah. really happen? And how will it change lastly when we do have different vaccines in the market? So uh, the Johnson and Johnson is in the news today. Um, safe, sixty-six percent uh, efficacy rate. Um, do we know? There's one more step for it to cross. Do we know when that will be uh, approved finally? I think that you know, given the history with Pfizer, where we spec we, we speculated that it will probably take some time, and then immediately it happened after the U.S. approved it. I think that you know, now that the U.S. Has, is very close to fully approving it. I would suspect, I mean, this is a speculation that within the next two weeks, if not the next month, Canada will approve the Johnson & Johnson. This is probably just getting waiting on the same data that the U.S. is waiting on. And what about AstraZeneca? Good question. We, we're still not clear when that will be approved. We know that the AstraZeneca has been given out to certain countries and low-middle-income countries, and so the data is there, the, the supply is happening. Uh, in Canada, it, again, I think it should happen within the next month. We'll have a very clear answer on whether we're getting it and when we're getting it. So if you were to rate these, doctor, in order of, I don't know, whether you would, whether it's efficacy, performance, uh, you know, storage, uh, one dose versus two, wouldn't it be Pfizer, then Moderna, then AstraZeneca, then Johnson & Johnson in order of priority? That's an excellent question for an immunologist because I think that you need to look really at the science, the intricacy of the science behind each of these vaccines to see which one is better than the other. I will say, though, from a health policy perspective, I think that when we're looking at vaccinations, all of them are effective, period. 
And so what, the scale of how effective they are varies depending on the science behind them. But in terms of achieving your ability to build immunity towards the virus, I mean, we wouldn't approve it if we don't believe, or Health Canada wouldn't approve it if it didn't believe that it provides protection against the virus. And this is, I think, goes back to my earlier question, Scott, is now we know that Canadians are educated. If you want the choice, are you given that choice between which vaccine you would like to have? You know, Ahmad, we have not had a lot of discussions that will need to be had once there's an abundance of this vaccination, whether it is, as you just mentioned, the choice of which one you get, even the even the discussion about hesitancy, uh, all of that. Those are discussions we have when there's lots, uh, when there's plenty of, of vaccine. We still haven't had a lot of those discussions yet, have we? No, we have not. And I think this is the issue that we're all flagging. We're saying that we knew that vaccinations you know, were eminent, that they were going to happen. Why are we waiting to have this conversation? I mean, our big concern here is that you know, people right now, you know, there is government and then there is science. And the two don't always come to, together. And so the science is telling us, that the he- and, and the evidence is telling us, hesitancy is high. Not everybody wants to get vaccinated. People have questions like the, the questions you're raising about the effectiveness of each one of those vaccines. We need to be spending so much time right now and effort educating the public, figuring out answers to those questions. And we're looking for the government to give us clarity in some of those questions that are very hard to get answers to. Uh, things like which vaccine is better than the other one? Do we have a choice between one or the other? If you get all, all the vaccines approved into Canada, how would that look like in terms of the plan for vaccination? How does it affect individuals who don't have access to a computer or a phone? Those are questions that we need to be addressing. And I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on the government right now to figure out what their plan is to address hesitancy uh, around vaccines. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Boy, this is uh, still lots of discussion to be had. Here we are almost a year later, uh, Ahmad. Uh, As always, thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciated. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move forward. Talk about uh, Facebook and social media. Have you seen The Social Dilemma? Highly recommend it. Uh, anyway, uh, we, we talked about this before with uh, Ian Lee, I believe it was. Uh, Canada joining forces with Australia to make uh, digital gi- uh, giants pay for news. You might remember uh, we talked about this before uh, where uh, Australia had said, you know, um, we're not happy with this. You're stealing uh, this content. You're not paying for it. And basically what happened was uh, Facebook said, well, we're going to cut off your news feed. Well, it appears... Uh, that uh, there has been some sort of deal made, and, and, and Facebook, it appears, has has uh, blinked. I'm going to read you the first paragraph of this article from the Hub Post. Uh, Justin Trudeau and his Australian counterpart, Scott Morrison, have agreed to continue coordinating efforts to ensure the revenues of web giants and shared are shared more failure with the or more fairly with the creators. Uh, and the media. Two prime ministers spoke Monday on a range of topics, including the need to address online harm and so, and have social media companies pay for the content and journalism they provide. The growing cooperation between Canada and Australia on the regulation platform comes as Facebook backed down on a ban to introduce last uh, week that prevented Australians from viewing and sharing on its platforms. Talk more about all of this. Ian Lee with us, professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business and with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So your thoughts on this? What's happening? It looks like some sort of deal has been made. A deal has been made, 
And that's probably better than, well, it is better than the alternative, which was, I thought, terrible. Um, uh, just let me back up for a moment, though, before we get into the, you know, the terms or what they're doing. Um, there's just so much that's wrong, what government, uh, the government of Australia is saying. It's factually wrong. And the government of Canada, I think they're both demagoguing. And because they know Facebook's big, and if you're big, you're bad, and, uh, and Google. And so there's a bias against very big corporations. We don't like them, and they think that this is going to, I believe, that they're doing this for political reasons. They use language that gives them away. They're talking about the harm that Google uses, uh, imposes and the harm that Facebook imposes. Let's deconstruct that and, and unpack what they're saying. All of us use Google. I use Google every day, dozens and dozens of times a day. And although I don't, I'm not a Facebook user, I believe there's over 2 billion users in the world. So when they say that they're causing harm, they're talking about all of us, we the people, using Google. So we are harmful. We are bad. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're using a search engine to find information. That's not bad. So they're, they're, in code, they're attacking all of us for using these two platforms, which have become very popular. Let's put, I fully acknowledge the facts. There's no reason not to. They're, they've attracted about 60% of all the online revenues, depending on the country you look at, and it varies somewhat. But let's be clear, they're attracting the lion's share of the online advertising dollars. Why? Because we, you, I, and millions and millions and millions of other people, find the service they're providing more beneficial. We go there and use it. Nobody's forcing Ian Lee to go and use Google. Nobody's forcing the millions of users, billion users or more, to use Facebook. We've chosen to go there and use it because it's, it services needs that we have. I use Amazon because it's very convenient for me, and I think it's a good value when I order something from there. So they're really attacking the government of Australia, Mr. Guy Bowen in Canada and the government of Australia are really attacking all of us for our consumer behavior, that we are using these two very popular sites. That's very problematic. But wait a sec, wait, wait a sec, Ian. That's like saying, you know, uh, let, let's draw a parallel with cannabis and the cannabis industry. Um, you, know, you know, at the end of the day, if people want to buy illegal cannabis, um, is that is that somehow the fault of those that are uh, are providing the service legally? Or um, you know, I, I understand what you're saying here, but at the end of the day, Facebook is not creating this; they're a delivery service. I understand we're all going there. Yeah. We're all going there because they're they're uh, they're accumulating all of the information from all of the various sources, and obviously doing not. it. But for they're not. But that is the second point I want to make, Scott. Sorry, I got to get in on this on this point because the it's the user made, that's putting the link up, not Facebook. I am saying putting a link up is not. Look, I I deal with this every day because we in the university are very sensitive to this whole question of copyright because we are subject to it too. By the way, and we get emails all the time. If I actually reproduce the document, the entire document, the five page, ten page, twenty page, thirty page, I don't care if it's an article or whatever. I am subject to copyright. But if I put a link in my course software, my course management right. software, and say, here's the link to that Globe and Mail story, 
I am not violating copyright. The law is very clear on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can say, well, I don't like the so law. Because, okay, and I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to clarify this, Ian. So because Facebook's not creating the content, it is the user who is just posting a link to the content that that is that's not a copyright issue i don't i i don't think that they would have a, a snowball's chance in hell going to court yeah. on that and that's why they haven't because if you mer- just think about it so let me if, ask you this Ian. let me ask you this listen if every human being because we're all subject to copyright not just big companies the copyright act doesn't say only big companies are subject to this we all are okay so what they're saying just think for the listeners out there in radio land you go and send an email to a friend, and you put, now I know it's silly, but it, it's not, that's the legal idea here. You go and send a, an email to a friend and put a link in there and say, go read this story. It's really neat. Technically, they're claiming, the government of Ontario, Canada, Mr. Giel, yeah, and, and Australia are claiming that we are breaking the law. No, we are not. If yeah, I hear what you're saying here. Yeah, you're reproducing the link, not the content. Right. So now, let I me ask you this question. I articles all the time, and I am violating, I'll tell you this, I do violate the copyright. I'm bad. I will reproduce the whole op-ed from the Globe and Mail or the New York Times and send it to a friend who doesn't subscribe. And I am in violation. I fully acknowledge right. that. But again, you're not making money off it. That's but the no, difference. I'm not making money off it. That's correct. So, uh, and obviously, you know, these search engines are. That being said, if, if, if to use the example you're giving, say you write, and we do this all the time with commentary, put a link to another story. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Usually it's ours. Usually it's it's our own content, not right. other people's. But that being said, we do put links to to other articles and such. Um, and But say it is uh, a media source. Uh, and I'm not in the media, say it's, it's, it's a newspaper, for example. Sure. Sure. Um, if the user goes to that link, that's the newspaper's link, so aren't they getting the hit anyway? The newspaper is benefiting, I would argue. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and I've been arguing this for a long time. The, 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 these small newspapers and magazines should be getting up every morning and thanking the gods that these uh, organizations are out there because it's delivering a lot more eyeballs to that company. And it's up to that company called McLean's Magazine or Quill Inquire or Financial Post or National Post to then monetize it. And to say, well, so the point is, is that when that link is put in whoever's article that is in, and we're not paying for it. So when I write a column and I put a, a, a link to an outside source in it, not yeah. with my company, um, it's then up to that website on the other end of that link to monetize yeah. that hit. It's not up to me. And, and there are people saying, oh, nobody wants to pay for it. This is nonsense. Mr. Gibo says people don't want to pay for it. I have seven. Okay, I'm probably an exception. I have seven subscriptions, and I'm paying 15 to 20 a month. New York Times, Globe and Mail, National Post, Telegraph, um, uh, New Yorker. I mean, I can go, really, I, 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 and that's not counting Netflix. That's not counting Amazon Prime Video. So the answer to this is a paywall when they hit that link. The, what we're really talking about is the failure of lots of media companies. Some media companies are doing very well. Globe and Mail is doing very well. New York Times is doing extremely well. I'm talking online. I'm yeah. talking Wall Street Journal. So to say that no one and Netflix is a subscription-based online company for movies, to say that people won't pay for it is nonsense. We are paying for it. A lot of companies have done a poor job. But let me go to the people say, well, don't blame those poor little guys against and quits defending Facebook. What I'm suggesting is the following. This is going to be extremely counterproductive. So because what is Facebook and, and Google going to do? It's so obvious what they're going to do. They're going to pay 
for the most popular links. Yeah. And that's so they're going to drive more business to the Globe and Mail, more business to the New York Times, more business to the giant independent newspaper publishers, and those little tiny um, uh, niche publications that have a thousand viewers or something or eyeballs watching it, they're going to wither on the bind because they're going to, they're not going to pay everybody. They're going to stop yeah. linking. No, that makes to, sense. They're going to stop so, Ian, let me, let me ask you this question. And they're going to kill them. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you this question then, so Ian. Mr. What, what is going to hurt small publishers in Canada with this law? He's going to hurt small media outlets, not help them. He's going to dis- help contribute to destroy them, and that's not right. So uh, how does how does the newspaper industry or other media, for that matter, uh, hold its own here? Because again, what's happening here is although the content is being generated, say at a at a newspaper level, it then gets transferred over to Apple. It ends up on their Apple News feed, and blah 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 blah, and and the and the creator doesn't get paid. And ultimately, what we've seen is the pool of journalists shrink in the country. That's right. So, how do you alleviate that problem? You are the real issue, and you just phrased it, Scott. That to me is the real issue. It's not a Facebook problem. It's not a Google problem. It's a problem of very small publishers. Let's just call them publishers, for want of a better word, because you know there's no distinction now between a magazine website and a newspaper website and a radio website and a TV website and so on. They're all websites on the internet, and uh, and so the question is, how do they generate the revenues to to carry the freight to cover the costs? And, and either it's going to be a public policy good problem, and that's not fancy talk. It just means the government's going to step in and say, look, there's a market failure here with the small publishers. And, and that's exactly what Canada's doing. They created a publisher sub- subsidy fund, and I think it's $500 million, and they're paying it out to these small niche publishers. That's one way to go. Uh, that's a public way to go. Another way is for these small groups to organize into essentially uh, producer collectives. And you saw that if you people remember a few years ago, oh, before the we started to go to the internet for all our news, and they'd have these publisher aggregators, and they would say, you know, buy the pay us whatever it was, ten or twenty dollars a month, and you can get like ten magazine subscriptions a month. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so something they're going to have to come up with be more innovative marketing. The these companies have been very poor uh, at at monetizing their own product. Some companies have been very good at it. There are companies out there thriving online, not just Netflix, not just Google. There are small niche companies out there that people haven't heard of that have built up a very loyal uh, uh, following of paid subscribers. So what we're going through is a transformative period of 5 or 10 or 15 years, and those publishers that are really, let's say, stuck in the old paradigm of publishing something in paper or print are going to die, to be honest, on the, on the, on the Serengeti. This is Darwinian. The weak companies that aren't dynamic and innovative enough will die. But there's lots of young, really smart young people today who are out there and they're developing new product and new magazines and new outlets, and they're figuring out how to monetize it. So I think that this is old, old thinking, old politicians living in the old analog world, coming up with analog solutions when the, right underneath their nose they're oblivious to it. There are solutions emerging spontaneously 
uh, digitally. There's a ton of digital entrepreneurship out there and innovation. And But it's very popular politically to say, I'm the politician like Guy Beau, to say, I'm standing up to those big, bad, powerful digital giants. And it makes him look like a hero, like a, you know, a strong man, a tough man. He's doing the same thing Trump did, only he's doing it from the other side of the political spectrum. I mean by that Trump like to come out, I'm the big strong man, I'm going to stand up to powerful interests. And that's what they're doing on the, on the other side of the spectrum. The liberals stand, saying we're going to stand up to those big bad digital giants. It's not going to solve the problem that we're talking about, that the, there are small businesses out there, small digital publishers that haven't learned yet to how to monetize themselves, how to market themselves in the digital world. So maybe they need assistance from government. Maybe they've got to figure it out on their own. But the solution, the long-term solution, is going to come not from forcing Facebook or Google to pay, because what they'll do is simply, obviously, pay the most popular, and the, which means the biggest, and they will cut off all the small ones, so they will have fewer eyeballs showing up on the screens of those small niche publishers, which will accelerate their decline and their death. Um, the Internet in all of this discussion is not new. It's been going on for quite a while now, uh, over a decade, maybe two. Um, if it was that easy for media companies to do that, why are journalists getting fired? It isn't that easy. First off, <laughs> the old line, if it's that easy, why isn't everybody doing it? Answer, it's not that easy. We've, the, the net was invented in 1968 by DARPA, the defense arm of the uh, U.S. Pentagon. It didn't get commercialized until 1995 with the first browser. I'm just going to a little bit of history here because it's interesting. So the first browser, I think it was Mosaic, and the first person, I think, in the world who understood the commercial implications was a guy by the name of Jeff Bezos. He saw before anybody else did, I can monetize this thing and create a business. And a few others did. The Wall Street Journal got in early. So did the Globe and Mail. So did the New York Times. And I don't mean two years ago. They started building their online site, oh my goodness, 15 years, 20 years ago, and at the turn of the century. And it took them, I mean, I think the New York Times reported last year, for the first time in their history, they now have more digital subscribers than print subscribers. So it took them 15 to 20 years to build the business. It isn't easy. It's hard. It's very hard. And it takes a long time. But to say that it cannot happen is simply contradicted by the reality, and there's a burgeoning industry out there of digital media. In fact, there's universities and colleges are getting in and creating programs for entrepreneurs for digital media. It's a booming area, but because they're all very small, people don't see it on the radar screen, and they see the journalists being laid off by old, mainstream, traditional analog media, and they're saying, oh my God, the media is coming to an end, and they don't realize there's just a ton of media out there, but we're calling them something different. We're calling them digital media startups. We don't call them journalists, but they're creating content. They're creating news, but we've classified them with a different name, and so there's more news than ever. I mean, the net is just exploding with information and news, and it's not all on Google and Facebook. And, and, so, and unfortunately, though, it's all not, all not as accurate as some of those other sure. traditional sources. So yeah. how do you balance that? Is We're there going to be a 25-year drought of no news until uh, the I mean, online world establishes itself? I, I accept your your point well that, you know, there, there's a lot of junk out. I tell my students every term, there's an enormous amount of junk on the, on the Internet. 
I mean, no, I, there's I think more like junk than there is. <laughs> but, but, okay. but there is, there are gold standards emerging. I mean, by gold standards, that's my slang, meaning there are some reliable sources mm-hmm. emerging. I mean, I don't think anyone would challenge that the Globe and Mail is absolutely solid or that the New York Times, this has nothing to do with ideology. The Wall Street Journal's conservative, it's extremely solid. So is the New York Times, which is very liberal. You know, uh, the Financial Times of London, uh, the Times of London, uh, the Telegraph. I mean, there are brands emerging that are becoming profitable. And, and that's not even to mention the, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the places like the Netflix of the world and companies like that. So it's going to take time, yes. And yes, there will be out there in the marketplace of ideas. There's going to be a lot of junk out there. But there's a lot of junk out in there in the stores also. There was also junk publications out there in the old print world and so consumers are becoming more and more discerning i'm i'm very i'm not you listen to the people in the government of ottawa the government of canada i mean and you know you would think that we're all a bunch of idiots and morons and we can't figure out things that they've got the cleverness to figure out we are very good at ordinary people at figuring things out and discerning that you know that publication over there it's a uh, filled with conspiracy theorists and, and crazies and i'm not going to go and re- waste my time reading it we most of us have that discerning ability, and and I don't think that there's a real problem here that the people at the top think that we don't have the acumen, hmm. the ability, the intelligence to make these judgments. Of course we do. We've been doing it for thousands of years or more. We discern, you know, that so-and-so is a bad guy, you know, and I'm going to stay away from that person over there because he gets into trouble all the time. And I stay away from that particular source of information because just, it's just too right-wing for me, or it's too left-wing for me, or if it's too religious for me. We make these judgments every day about the, the authenticity and reliability of information when we don't know the source of the, uh, you know, we don't know who's behind it. And, and so I'm not, you know, they're getting their knickers in a knot. I mean, yes, there's some horrible things on the net. And if there is, well, there's laws, or maybe they need new laws to go and prosecute people for racism, for, homopho- for homophobic statements, uh, for sexist statements. Okay, maybe we need a better set of uh, prosecutorial laws, mm-hmm. no question there. But the idea that we're going to regulate what what the average Canadian, and they're talking about this in Ottawa right now, they want to regulate what is actually published on on digital media. And this is, this is the, I mean, this is beyond uh, Orwell and Big Brother. They it's regulate beyond. what's on traditional media. Why wouldn't they regulate what's but they on... But they've never, nobody's ever told the Globe and Mail what to put on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Nobody but there's standards there. Well, I got it. We're out of time. Got to got to wrap it up there, Ian. Ian okay. Lee is with us, professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business. Uh, the headline: Canada joins forces with Australia to make the digital giants pay for their news. Ian strongly disagrees. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.